You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Well, so recently we've seen uh, a lot of cases being filed in particular states, um, mainly in Florida and California, attempting to apply wiretapping laws to internet technologies called session replay technology. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. (laughs) On this week's show, Ben shares the story of some of the big online players bowing to pressure from Russian authorities. I've got the story of the Supreme Court hearing a case on state secrets and FBI surveillance. And later in the show, my conversation with Paul Carlsgott from Baker Hostetler. We're going to discuss the latest class action trend, wiretapping claims for the use of standard online tracking software. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. All right, Ben, let's uh, dig into some of our stories this week. Why don't you kick things off for us here? So my story comes from the New York Times uh, in their technology section by Anton uh, Troynovsky and Adam Satariano. Mm-hmm. Remember a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about Apple and CSAM and how uh, Apple was going to release this limited tool to track online predators to protect against uh, sexually exploitative images of children? Sure. Had a whole episode on it. Yep. They assured us that this was a limited tool being used for a important purpose. We should still trust Apple with our privacy and our security. They would not bow to the pressures of uh, international regimes that might not uh, be so incredibly kind to civil liberties. Right. We now have indication that both Apple and Google are quite uh, prone to pressure from autocratic governments. Uh, This news comes from Russia. I don't know if you know, they're having an election coming up. A a quotes around election? Yeah. I I have the over-under on Putin's percentage somewhere in the high 90s. It's going to be a real nail-biter down to the wire there for him, isn't it? Yeah. We'll have to see how those key counties come in. Uh, But... I, I feel quite quite bullish on his chances. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so they're having an election. It's a three-day election coming up. And the opposition, led by probably the most prominent and well-known um, pro-democracy Russian politician, Alexei Navalny, has mm-hmm. tried to organize some type of uh, opposition in response. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's an electoral strategy to try and uh, curb the voting results in every single district of Putin's ruling party. Okay. And he's trying to use an application that he created uh, and other allies of the opposition created, which would help to consolidate that protest vote. So this is a mobile app on your on your phone? So on your phone, example. exactly. Okay. So you log in, 
Uh, it would tell you which opposition candidate to vote for to maximize your showing of opposition in each uh, of the 225 electoral mm-hmm. districts. So kind of a, a voter information act or um, a voter information app, but uh, mostly for the benefit of one side of the election. Right. Yeah. Now, this, you know, this obviously is not intended to win the election. Uh, I think right. Putin's United <laughs> Russia Party uh, has that pretty much in the bag. But this is to express some level of opposition because I think it does matter, you know, whether the ruling party in Russia gets 90% versus 98%. percent hmm so the app, uh, at the request of the Russian government, was removed from the Apple Store and from Google Play. Hmm. Uh, and this is all part of a campaign by the Kremlin to rein in what's still largely an uncensored internet in Russia. Putin's uh, spokespeople didn't uh, respond to requests for comment, but they did, uh, through a statement, say that the application was illegal. Hmm. It's you know something that that's not allowed. Under the technology laws that exist in Russia, hmm. uh, you know they they say they have good purposes for uh, these laws, you know, to crack down on fraud, um, <laughs> right? Because because Russia is all about cracking down on misinformation, right? Absolutely, and they care <laughs> very deeply about election integrity, right, uh, as, right. what I, as what I've yes, heard. Yes, they do. Um, so the the threat that the Russian government made to Apple and Google was that they would actually arrest Apple and Google employees who are living in Russia, Hmm. uh, over which they have jurisdiction. Uh, So it was a pretty blunt threat. And Apple and Google backed down. Uh, So they removed this application from their app store. Hmm. What this leads me to believe is that Apple and Google might represent that they're willing to stand up to totalitarian governments, that they're willing to do what they can to foster uh, democratic opposition movements, to support free speech. But when the rubber hits the road— and they start to threaten, you know, Google and Apple's own employees in Russia, they're going to cave. Hmm. And that should make us think twice about their promises. Mm -hmm. Um, Once they create these tools, like the ability to go into individual devices, search the iCloud for photos to see if any of them match sexually explicit images for children, our natural next question should be, what happens when the Russian government or the Chinese government comes and tries to intimidate you into using that tool for nefarious purposes or to crack down on democratic dissent. Right. Uh, and this has obviously um, really rattled the the cages of, you know, some of the civil liberties proponents, uh, Electronic Frontier Foundation, those types of groups um, who are uh, understandably very critical of uh, Apple and Google for taking down this Navalny uh, application, as mm-hmm. it's called. So uh, I think this is a warning sign for people who think that you can trust these big tech companies to protect democratic interests, free speech interests, uh, even in the face of threats from totalitarian governments. We now have a very clear example of them backing down uh, under that threat. Yeah. So uh, let's let's look at Russia and China separately because mm-hmm. I think I think there's some differences here that we could that that might make a difference. Um, you know, Russia's. Uh, you know, percentage of the global economy is much, much smaller than China's, sure is, of yep. course. So um, could it be plausible, for example, for Apple or Google to say, uh, fine, we're, we're not going to do business in your nation. This is not worth it to us. We're, we're pulling out, you know, people will we'll still have this stuff available on the Internet, but we're pulling our people out. 
and uh, so be it. Now, contrast that against China, right. where most of this stuff, well, all of this stuff is made, mm-hmm. right? So you've got your manufacturing base over there. Um, and a large portion of your customer base. A huge part of your customer base. Yeah. So how? So that's a whole different ballgame, right? I think there is a discernible difference there. Um, you know, Russia is still a major international player, even though they're not an enormous market share the way China is or even the United States is. Right. It's still a really big country, uh, yeah. and a lot of people use uh, Apple and Google in Russia. They do have employees there. Sure. So it's not like it would be no sacrifice to cease doing business in the country. There are countries where, you know, it might make sense politically for Apple and Google to cut ties. Mm-hmm. North Korea, obviously not much of a power economically. Right. Um, they have a totalitarian government. You know, if if there were if there was a threat from the North Korean government, I think Apple and Google would be fine cutting bait to protect their reputation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they didn't in this case, which leads me to believe that they care enough about continuing to do business in Russia. Um, you know, even though this isn't China, this isn't you know the world's largest growing economy. Um, but it leads me to believe that they have enough of a willingness to stay there that they're willing to listen to the demands of a totalitarian government. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think this gives a lot of uh, ammunition to civil, si- uh, civil society groups saying that um, in, in all different countries around the world, not just Russia and China, they mentioned India, Myanmar, and Turkey, where countries are being pressured to censor political speech or, or to uh, conduct internet outages. We have to be very mindful of the fact that Apple and Google can be susceptible to that pressure. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, keep that in mind when you're using their products. You, know, you might not think it's going to affect you. It might not affect you. But, you know, I think this is somewhat of a, of a dangerous precedent. And I think that's the lesson here. Let me play devil's advocate here for a second. Oh, not, you do you. Not, not, not that the devil needs an advocate, right? But um, what if this is a prudent first step? In other words, this is not the absolute end of this interaction between these companies and Russia. Um, because, okay, this app wasn't going to make a difference, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Putin's going to win this election regardless of this app or not. So it's a it's a symbolic gesture on on the part of the opposition. Right? It is a symbolic gesture. Yeah. Um, but it's also symbolism that even though this is not a direct threat to Putin's governance governance or his ability to stay in power, that they still exceed they they still uh the Google and Apple still gave in to these demands. Right. But where I'm going with this is um, Russia comes to these companies and says, hey, knock it off or we're going to arrest your people. Right. And so these companies say, okay, our number one priority is the safety of our people. I think that's an appropriate response. So, okay, we're going to pull these apps because we don't want to – we don't want the possibility of putting our people in harm's way. Our employees getting arrested, yeah. Right, right. Going to Siberia. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So – we do that to put off that possibility. But now what ha- I guess what I'm wondering is what happens next? Because if you're Apple and Google, does this begin the process of you saying, all right, well, we can't have people in that country anymore. If this is going to be hanging over us for every decision we make, we need to change how we do business with them. Let's get our people out of there so that this is no longer a threat that they can make against us. 
Right. I think we're not at the point where we have a, a definitive answer to that question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that remains to be seen. I'm not optimistic just because, you know, most users in Russia, just like most countries around the world, use one of two operating systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they happen to belong to these two tech companies uh, who received this threat and who gave in to this threat. Right. So it's one of those things, you know, all believe that they they just uh, gave in to this one particular demand to protect their employees when I actually see them take further action and say, we're not going to do business in Russia if we're going to be subject to these threats. Yeah. Or we're going to do business in Russia, uh, but we're not going to have any employees on the ground. Um, our, you know, iOS and, and Android's operating system will be available in the country, uh, but we're going to have a reduced presence there because of these threats. Mm-hmm. That could happen. You know, I think until we see it happen, I think we have reason for skepticism. Yeah. All right. Well, time will tell. It certainly is uh, an interesting development for sure. Yeah, and if you want to uh, bet the odds on the election, I hear you can get um, the opposition <laughs> for uh, yeah. It's a long shot. One hundred thousand to one odds. So go ahead and go ahead and make that bet. Right. There, it might right. be uh, in your sports book in Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> a uh, an asteroid falls out of the sky and lands on Putin. He'd still probably. Still probably wins, wins. yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. All right, well, let's move on to my story uh, this week. Uh, This comes from the folks over at Lawfare, um, and uh, it's written by Rohini Karup, and uh, it's titled Supreme Court to Hear State Secrets Case on FBI Surveillance. Um, I I put this in here knowing that this is, given how long this case has been making its way through the system, that— it would surely be something that you would be up to speed on and probably indeed have uh, shared with your students or, or had discussions with your students about. Um, so what's going on here, Ben? We have a, a case hitting the Supreme Court, uh, and this is uh, the, the FBI versus Fasaga. Uh, and this had to do with uh, covert surveillance of Muslim <laughs> communities in Southern California. Uh, this was over a decade ago that this started. But uh, these folks who feel as though they were um, uh, surveilled uh, without uh, – unjustly surveilled by the FBI have filed suit and it's made its way all the way to the Supreme Court. What are the details here? So this, as you say, stems from uh, surveillance that took place almost 15 years ago in Southern California. There Mm -hmm. was an FBI agent who tried to infiltrate a group of Muslims. This was the the height of the war on uh, terrorism. Right. So triggered by 9-11, this sort of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and long story short, uh, he was eventually discovered. It's, the, the case seems to me to be very close to entrapment uh, because it was the FBI agent who was encouraging these individuals to commit acts of violence. Hmm. So the three men who are the subject of the surveillance filed a suit uh, alleging unlawful surveillance. In most cases, um, this is an incredibly hard suit to get into court into first place um, because – the nature of electronic surveillance is that it's very secretive. And to get your day in court, you need to prove standing. Right. And we know from Clapper v. Amnesty International that unless you can assert with any sort of impending certainty that you were surveilled, it's going to be very hard to get your day in court. Mm. What makes this case unique is that they they have proof. They know that they've been surveilled. Okay. Um, and so that brings up a couple of other very interesting justiciability issues. There's this thing called the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. You've probably heard of it. Yeah. FISA. FISA. There's a By per- the way, I, this was, I, I was not aware at, at, at how far back FISA goes. It 1978. Goes back to 1978. Yeah, yeah I, I thought the 
for no particular reason other than my own ignorance of the law, <laughs> I thought that this, you know, was a 9-11 era thing, but it, it predates that significantly. It was, yeah. It was expanded because of 9-11. It re- originally, it was enacted for a variety of reasons, uh, one of which, uh, and you might remember this because of your old age, <laughs> was the church committee in the 1970s, which uh, studied abusive government surveillance programs. So hmm. they needed to pass a law to have some sort of legal regime to do this in a way that didn't violate civil liberties. Right. One of the one provision of the FISA law says that when dealing with classified material, the district court can hold an in-camera and ex parte hearing, meaning private, um, no parties available, just the, the district court judge reviewing the material, um, to read classified material that can't be released in open court. Hmm. That um, has very interesting interplay with a, another tool that the government has called the state secrets privilege. Mm. The state secrets privilege is a tool used in civil cases where the government can either uh, seek to exclude evidence or get a case thrown out of court if that case deals with what are called state secrets. Mm-hmm. And the attorney general or his or her designee has to make an affirmative statement saying information contained in this case would violate state secrets – we want you to throw this case out of court. Okay. Very quick aside here. The case that is the foundational case of the state secrets privilege comes from the 1950s, United States v. Reynolds. Uh, in that case, the secret conter- the state secret was invoked to protect, quote, and, end quote, military information about a plane that crashed. Huh. Turns out it was entirely BS, that there was no actual secretive information they just didn't want to be held liable for the plane crash. And that, I was, was, <laughs> that was discovered 50 years later after okay. that case. I yeah. was going to ask you about that because it seems to me like this, like with when it comes to state secrets, who watches the watchman? Is, is there any oversight or does the uh, government, does the Justice Department have the ability to say this is secret because we said so and we can't tell you why? Pretty much. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have to make— there's a test where they have to make a substantial preliminary showing. Mm. So you you have to have a little bit more than this is a secret, secret, we can't reveal it. Yeah, I'll say that in my experience, judges are incredibly deferential uh, to the executive branch when they invoke the state secrets privilege. Okay. So the question in this case is whether that state secrets privilege, which the government has invoked in this case, supersedes the provision of the FISA Act, which allows cases to continue in court uh, if there is this in-camera ex parte proceeding. Hmm. The upshot of this is if the state secrets privilege does supersede that provision of FISA, then the case is going to get thrown out of court Hmm. uh, because judges have determined that the state secrets privilege here has been properly invoked. It's not safe to hold this trial uh, is basically what the government is saying and and what the district court uh, potentially has agreed with because it's going to reveal state secrets. If they are allowed to use the provision under FISA, then the district court judge can reveal that information privately uh, in a classified setting, but this case would still be allowed to continue, and that might lead to these three defendants getting relief. So Hmm. it's a big test as to whether this provision in FISA that governs the review of classified materials is going to be operative at all, Um, because if, if the court determines that the state secrets privilege supersedes that provision— of course, the government's going to invoke the state secrets privilege in every case where it's remotely plausible to do so. Right. So that's at, that's at issue in this case. We're going to hear oral arguments in October, uh, I believe, so relatively early in the term. Uh, and um, we'll get, a, uh, I think, a good indication of how this case is going to go. 
Any sense here for what might play out? So the government uh, has had pretty good has a pretty good success rate on state secrets privilege cases. Hmm. You know, one thing that the government has success uh, successfully done is used the state secrets privilege and the need to establish standing as sort of a two headed monster. Hmm. Somebody will come in and say, "Hey, I was surveilled." They'll say, all right, where's your proof? And they'll say, here's my proof. And they'll say, you can't bring that into court. That's state secrets privilege. Hmm. Uh, So we can exclude that material. Here we finally have a case where they do have proof, uh, which makes things a little bit more interesting. Mm. Um, So I'm I'm kind of 50-50 on whether this is going to succeed. And I'm not usually 50-50 when it comes to cases. I usually lean one way uh, or Hmm. another. I said October, by the way. It's going to be heard in uh, November. Okay. Um, And there's actually another case that's going to be considered relating to the state secrets privilege as well. Um, So we'll get a good idea on how the court views that privilege. There was a movement 10, 15 years ago to do away with the state secrets privilege or at least raise the bar for its invocation. Mm -hmm. Um, That kind of went nowhere. Uh, It was proposed in Congress. It was never enacted. So I think, uh, you know, we haven't really seen the court weigh in specifically on, on this issue in a while. Um, so this will be our our best indication. Stay tuned. Does something does the fact that that this case has made its way all the way to the Supreme Court does that have an impact on this type of surveillance at all? The, the the fact that something like this could could make it this far, do you think that has an impact on the type of the, the, how the FBI is coming at this and the Justice Department and so on? Is there a chilling effect there or or a limiting effect? My instinct is no. Okay. Because out of all of the surveillance that the FBI does and that the CIA does, a tiny fraction of those cases are, um, you know, instances where the people who are being surveilled actually discover the surveillance and bring a lawsuit in court. Mm. They're pretty good at what they do. They're good at keeping their surveillance secretive. Right. Um, and so even if a person has a hunch that they're being surveilled, it's very difficult to prove it and to and to make it into court in the first place. Mm. So I think um, the FBI, the CIA, all of our intelligence agencies, they're going to say it's still worth it for us to cast a wide net in terms of surveillance. Um, you know, if we get caught once in a while, we get caught. It's not worth curtailing our programs because it's really hard for people who have been surveilled to get their day in court. Mm-hmm. So I don't think this is going to have a chilling effect on the activities of the FBI or, or other intelligence agencies. Hmm. All right. Uh, yeah, another one, I guess, where time will tell here. We'll have to come back and uh, check in on this one as it develops. Yeah, we'll, we'll uh, re- talk about it, I'm sure, when the oral arguments take place in November and then when the case comes out sometime next spring. Yeah, again, this is uh, over on the uh, Lawfare blog, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, again, we would love to hear from you. If you have a question for us, you can email us to caveat at thecyberwire.com. And uh, we'd be happy to answer your questions on the show. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netscope.com. 
All right, Ben, uh, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Paul Carlscott from uh, the law firm Baker Hostetler, and we were discussing uh, what he describes as a recent class action trend, and that is using existing wiretapping laws uh, to uh, fight against online tracking software. Here's my conversation with Paul Carlscott. Most of the laws that you're talking about were passed uh, 40, 50 even longer years ago, that were intended to prevent uh, mostly law enforcement actors from surreptitiously recording people on telephone technologies. And so that was the original intent of most of these laws. Uh, And then uh, as time went by, probably 10 to 20 years ago, there was a trend of class actions being brought for call centers and other Uh, companies using telephone technologies uh, that were recording calls, mostly for customer service purposes. Everybody's uh, familiar with uh, this call may be monitored or recorded for customer quality assurance issues. And lawsuits were were filed essentially alleging that anytime that someone uh, recorded a consumer call without permission and without giving that kind of disclaimer that they were violating the wiretap law. And so that ultimately led to the more recent trend, which is to take that and uh, apply it to Internet communications, where anytime there's any uh, allegation of or ability to allege that uh, someone is recording in some way someone's activities on the Internet, that also violates wiretapping laws. Yeah, you know, at the risk of, of sort of uh, getting away from our original topic here, I mean, here in Maryland, which uh, where where I live, this is a two-party consent state. So if you're, you know, having a telephone conversation with someone, both parties have to consent to being recorded. Um, but there have been interesting uh, incidences over the years where, for example, you know, someone was videotaping a police officer and prosecutors tried to come after that person by saying that because they were recording audio and didn't have you know the explicit permission of the police officer that they were going to throw the book at them using wiretapping laws uh you know an interesting avenue to pursue yeah and you see a lot of the use of these laws in a way that really they weren't intended to apply they they're really their main intent originally was to protect citizens from big brother type activities, again, mainly from law enforcement actors. Um, So you see in that situation, it gets turned around on someone who's essentially trying to expose potential wrongdoing by the police. Um, And you also see uh, these laws being used in litigation to uh, attempt to apply to technologies and situations that were really not contemplated at the time the laws were passed. Well, can you take us through the present day then? You and your colleagues recently put out an alert about uh, how perhaps some class action firms might be coming at that. Um, What's the current state of things? Well, so recently we've seen uh, a lot of cases being filed in particular states, um, mainly in Florida and California, attempting to apply wiretapping laws to Internet technologies called session replay technology where um, certain uh, actions that would be undertaken by someone when browsing a website get recorded for purposes of analyzing general and usually anonymized user activity. In other words, the 
operator of the website is trying to get an understanding of how users interact with the website to optimize the way in which people can interact with it. So that's really the technology. The argument that the plaintiffs make in those cases is that by recording user activities on websites, they're in turn recording communications that uh, consumers are having with those websites. And, and so rather than the internet actions being actions, the, the plaintiffs claim they're communications and that those communications are being intercepted in a way that is unknown to the user. And have judges found this to be a compelling argument? So far, defendants have been winning these cases. And so far, uh, the ones that haven't reached any kind of uh, conclusion on motions to dismiss, uh, they have not been going well for the plaintiffs. Um, I think you see, though, the same trend that you've seen with plaintiffs trying to apply wiretapping laws to other technologies, including call recordings, where they'll file enough cases where if they can just get traction with one judge who finds that, you know, this sort of the novel theory of this new technology being applied to an old law actually meets the elements of a cause of action, then they can point to that, the outcome in that case, in the next case. And I think the the idea is if we can just get one or two judges to go along with us, then we'll start a trend and we'll be able to bring these cases all across the country, wherever there's a, a two-party wiretapping type statute. Hmm. And I mean, is this similar to, you know, after GDPR, we all saw all of the notifications about cookies, you know, so we had sort of a a new layer of informed consent. Could could that be where we're headed with this, where if companies are using this kind of uh, monitoring technology that ahead of time, in the same way that the call centers had to say, we're recording this call for, you know, uh, quality assurance, similar to that, where they, if they inform you, then perhaps they're off the hook? That could be where this is going. It's It's hard to say. Again, at this point, these are novel theories. They're really taking the statute way beyond the technologies that they were intended to apply to. And so far, as I said, the lawsuits have not been successful. Mm. It may be that uh, the trend fizzles out and companies don't have to go to the step of adding additional layers of notice. Uh, obviously, there's a flip side to you know that, which is the notice has become very annoying and they, yeah. they make the user experience on websites much more cumbersome and difficult. And so... It's hard to say at this point whether that will be a corporate reaction to it. Uh, you know, if you're someone who's trying to run a website and you want your website to be user friendly, you certainly want to limit the number of disclosures that you have to give to folks when they're using it. Does this speak to the need for updated regulations, updated legislation? If people are, you know, reaching back decades into the past for you know, wiretapping, you know, landline phone laws to try to apply to the modern era. Does that speak to the sort of lagging nature of, of uh, regulation and legislation in this area? In part, it does. Uh, I would say I'm someone who represents corporations and, and generally am taking the position, and I, I think reasonably so, that there's no need for legislation at all, that this is not conduct that needs to be regulated. And in fact, it's really based on uh, assumptions that in large part are not true. In other words, that people's internet activities are being tracked in a way where 
someone is aware of their particular, you know, Paul Carlscott is actually a, a browsing this website and doing these things on a website. That's really not what most of these technologies do. They um, are really tracking anonymized activity for purposes of, of um, trying to optimize experience. And so in part, the, the lawsuits are trying to take advantage of assumed ignorance about how some of these technologies work about the fact that that a lot of judges are, are not going to understand the technical aspects or be unwilling to get into the technical aspects of the of the claim until after some discovery has been done. And certainly um, the plaintiff's tactic is to try to get into discovery because it's expensive. And then, you know, if a defendant has to face either discovery or paying a settlement to get out of the case, oftentimes they'll settle. And so it's it's really, from my perspective, not so much a problem that needs solving, but a novel theory being brought for purposes of personal gain for primarily uh, lawyers. Now, of course, you're getting a, a one-sided uh, uh, viewpoint from someone who defends <laughs> corporations and lawsuits. But on the other side, it, it is something where if there really are serious privacy uh, concerns that are associated with either... Um, these types of technologies um, or other technologies that, you know, are constantly evolving. That really is a time, I think, for state legislatures and potentially Congress to get involved and consider whether there are uh, there, there's a need for new laws. Um, certainly the idea of applying 50 year old statutes to Internet technologies is fraught with lots of problems uh, because and, and, and beyond that, um, the fact that these are mostly criminal statutes um, is also a problem because hmm. there's, uh, you know, there's the stigmatizing effect of being accused of wiretapping. It's not simply a cause of action uh, in, in a civil case. It also um, arguably violates criminal law in, in many states. And so it, it really is kind of a square peg in a round hole kind of situation, whether it's a, a problem needing solving or a solution in need of a problem is uh, up to the listener to decide. Yeah. What sort of guidance have you put out for your own clients here in terms of the, you know, the, the degree to which this should be on their radar and they should be concerned or, you know, preemptive measures they could take to try to keep them out of the crosshairs? There's a couple things that most of our clients are already doing, but, but that would be part of kind of what we would talk to them about. Um, Number one, understand the technologies that you're using, whether it's advertising technologies, these um, kinds of um, you know, user tracking technologies that, that uh, track user activities on websites, um, including session replay. Understand what the technologies do. And once you understand what the technologies do, make sure that your privacy policy in terms of use accurately describe those technologies. Um, if you're doing those two things, it's much more difficult for a plaintiff to make a credible argument that you're failing to disclose something to your users, let alone violating some sort of privacy right that they have. All right, Ben, what do you think? I'm very curious to see uh, where this will go and if this is going to be a viable tool for people who are 
victims, uh, if you will, of standard online tracking software. Mm-hmm. In order to sustain a class action suit, you have to prove that you, you know, a single class of people has the same issues of law and fact. Yeah, I think this is a good opportunity to do so because these online tracking tools apply to millions of people. Um, it's not the most efficient avenue of relief. Uh, for individuals, because a class action suit is going to get you, you know, a couple of bucks and, and maybe a, a nice pat on the back. We all know who makes money in, in class action suits. Yep, let's just say they all have JD uh, in their in their title after their names. Right, right. Um, but it'll be interesting to see if that if this can be sustained under wiretapping laws. I mean, I um, I'm kind of undecided on on whether uh, using our federal wiretapping laws is is the best avenue to curb these surveillance practices. Mm-hmm. And you know, I I think there's a reasonable case that could be made that this is wiretapping and the legal definition uh, of the term. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that's been sufficiently established anywhere. So I'm just I'm curious to see where this goes. Well, and I think as Paul and I, you know, alluded to, um, maybe it's time for these wiretapping laws to be updated. You know, they they in in some ways they strike me as being kind of a relic of an earlier time. And though, so, you know, being applied to modern communications tools, uh, I think there's a little creakiness there. Yeah, it is a relic. I mean, it was literal wiretapping. They would put taps on the wires. Like, that that doesn't happen anymore. Alligator clips on the the copper, yeah. Right, yeah. I mean, now our tools are more sophisticated, so our laws should be more sophisticated. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, generally the trend has been to expand wiretapping laws to allow the government to collect the same amount of information from new technological sources. Mm. Um, what legal theorists would say is, all right, if we're going to grant the government those additional powers, we should grant consumers the same rights to challenge that surveillance, to keep things in a proper equilibrium. Oh, I see. Um, that's called the equilibrium adjustment theory for you nerds out there. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, we do appreciate Paul Carlscott uh, for joining us. Uh, thanks so much uh, for taking the time. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>